Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The producers of the new documentary film, The True Cost, note that there's been a 500% increase in clothing consumption in the past two decades, and that the U.S. has gone from producing more than 90% of its clothing in the 1960s to just 3% today. They say that the price of clothing has been decreasing for decades, while the human and environmental costs have grown dramatically. Filmmaker Andrew Morgan asks us to consider who really pays the price for our clothing. How complicit are we as American and Western consumers in the true cost of the fashion industry? He also talks with designers, fashion executives, activists, and journalists who are pushing for an ethical and sustainable future for global fashion. The trailer was released on April 24th, coinciding with Fashion Revolution Day, commemorating the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh. The film will be released on May 29th. Andrew Morgan, welcome to the program. Hey, Tom. It's great to be here. Great to uh, have you on the program. Very interesting and important film, and uh, treats a very important uh, subject. Uh, before we get into the discussion, uh, let's hear just uh, from the beginning of the film that sort of sets up the, uh, the, the issues here from the introduction. This is a story about clothing. It's about the clothes we wear, the people who make these clothes, and the impact that it's having on our world. It's a story about greed and fear, power and poverty. It's complex as it extends all the way around the world. Also simple, revealing just how connected we are to the many hearts and hands behind our clothes. I came into the story with no background in fashion at all beginning with nothing more than a few simple questions. What I've discovered has forever changed the way I think about the things I wear. And my hope is that it might just do the same for you. So how did you get into this 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 topic? You've made films on uh, on other topics. So why the fashion industry and the, the true cost of uh, the hidden costs here? Yeah, I think it was just, uh, it was that curiosity. I was, uh, I remember I was finishing up my last film I was getting coffee one morning, and I picked up the New York Times uh, the day after the building uh, factory collapsed just outside of Dhaka, Bangladesh. And I read the story along with a lot of people around the world that day of this clothing factory that was making clothes for major Western brands that I knew and frequented. And yet it was being done in a way that had led to this catastrophic loss of life. And when I first read that article, I just had a lot of questions. I just really wanted to understand um, how, in a modern world like ours, something as simple as clothing could be leading to something so deadly. And it just led me down a path that kind of just began to be more and more fascinating the farther I went. Let's hear some of these. Uh, these are news reports, and they, you include these in your in your film. It, it takes us back. I think this this hit us all. Unfortunately, the news cycle, you know, rotates, and, and some of us don't think about this more, but this is what this is what happened. This is the news reports here. Two weeks after the catastrophe, and the death toll now stands at a staggering 931, making it the worst garment industry disaster in history. I think one of the, the, the most profoundly impressing things about the Rana Plaza disaster was that news that the workers had already pointed out to the management the cracks in the building. They'd already pointed out that the building was structurally unsafe and yet they'd been forced back in. Many survivors are asking how they could have been forced to return to work when management already was aware of the cracks in the building and workers' concerns on the very day of the collapse. A lot of clothes in American stores are made in Bangladesh by workers who earn about $2 a day. Last month there, a garment factory collapsed, killing more than 1,000. And a few months before that, a factory fire killed more than 100. And as bodies are still being pulled out of the rubble, another factory in Bangladesh caught fire early this morning, killing eight more people. As story after story of clothing factory disasters kept filling the news, it was now the case that three of the four worst tragedies in the history of fashion had all happened in the last year. As the death toll rose, so did the profits generated. The year following the disaster at Rana Plaza was the industry's most profitable of all time. The global fashion industry is now an almost $3 trillion annual industry. 
So this is, uh, we like to think this is in the past, don't we? I mean, as I was watching the film, I, I was thinking of the uh, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. It's 1911. It's an uh, iconic uh, moment in, in American history, and a lot of reforms came out of that. And I guess we, we try to not think about this. I think that's exactly right. I mean, Rana Plaza took place, you know, close to 100 years later, and it is, it's striking to look at the similarities. And, you know, it's one of those symptoms. I think what we really explore in the film is that a lot of these tragic factory uh, incidents that continue to happen all over the world are, are horrific, but they are symptoms of something larger. And, and that something larger is uh, a system that kind of defines the industry at this point of, you know, the major brands that are selling us these clothes are producing them in a way that is incredibly separated, you know, incredibly disconnected. And it kind of has, it's kind of allowed us all to not just turn a blind eye, but not even have to have to look at it. You know, we've been so separated, it seems so far away. And it is striking when, when something takes place like this, where it sort of brings the, the world much closer together. Now, you talk about globalization in, in the film. One of the people uh, says that the, the bargain was supposed to be globalization. We in the West get uh, cheaper goods, uh, you know, to nicer goods, and people in developing countries get jobs. So that's yeah, and I think and I think it's kind of globalization has been you know sold and celebrated as as that win-win scenario, and I think um, it hasn't been broadly questioned. And I think what we're seeing in case after case right now all over the world is that what's actually in fact happening is um, inc- incredible exploitation that's actually entrenching poverty. You know, it's always it's always explained like these these poor people don't have other options, so at least they have jobs. So you know, even if the factory is going to fall down on top of them, you know, they wouldn't have work otherwise. And I think there's just a growing number of people who are ready to say we we could do a lot better than that. Hmm. There's a lady I can't remember her name. She's work she's worked for one of these big companies. And she's defending this. Uh, she says, and I'm, I'm quoting from the film, they're doing a job, speaking to people, these workers. They have a job. There's not, And she says, goes on to say, there's nothing intrinsically dangerous about sewing clothes, which uh, yeah, I guess on the face of it is, is true. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it, there's a lot of defense for this. And, uh, you know, I didn't know as a filmmaker stepping into this topic just what a hot button this is, because the, this really gets at the heart of the free market, you know, you know, don't put regulation on, don't impose rule. Like the market will sort this stuff out. And I think what what a lot of people are really beginning to articulate now, and certainly is voiced in the film, is that sense that, you know, business in a competitive world needs to be competitive and there's a, a force uh, factor of the market. But it's it's been explained to me kind of like a, if you're playing a soccer game, you know, there's gotta be rules. You you gotta have limits on what we're okay with. And up until now We've left a lot of those rules up to the, the players that are playing on the field, and I think that that fundamentally has to and, and will change. Could you tell me about the, the, this trend of uh, fast fashion? Yeah, so fast fashion, you know, basically is is denoting a, a way of manufacturing which starts by you know going to the runway shows and then quickly copying the styles that are being walked on those runways and uh, bringing them to market in an incredibly fast pace so that they appear in, uh, in stores uh, much, much quicker than they did traditionally. So what that's done is um, it has taken what was initially two seasons a year in fashion, then four seasons a year, to now be new product lines every week, and in some cases products being replenished and replaced every day in some of these stores. So what that's created is uh, an incredibly low-quality product, an incredibly low-price-point product, and it's kind of ushered in this this era where we're beginning to look at clothing as a, a disposable item, which, as you could imagine, has profound impacts. Yeah, you. Uh, there's a scene in the film where you go to Haiti, and you 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 point out that uh, donated clothes are are you know they're not being recycled, they're not being used, maybe in the way we would uh, we would think. Uh, a lot of people in Haiti are wearing some of these hand-me-downs, essentially. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's for me, you know, when we explored in the film, uh, you know, we walked through um, 
landfills all over the world that were just full of clothing waste as far as the eye could see, uh, which was just just stunning. And and for me, to be honest with you, it was kind of an eye-opener to think like, you know, wow, where, 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 where does this stuff actually go if we're taking in this much more of it than it makes sense that we're putting it out? But for me, the saving grace was um, like, well, I don't throw it away. I donate it. You know, I give it to Goodwill or something. And it was startling to learn that less than 10% of what is donated to charities actually is sold in thrift stores. And the rest of it is sold uh, into these secondhand markets um, in developing countries uh, across the world. And what's happening um, repeatedly is that those secondhand markets are really undercutting and destroying local clothing markets in these countries. And we saw that profoundly play out across Africa. Uh, and, and we're seeing the same thing in Haiti, where you used to have local tailors, used to have seamstresses, and, and by and large, these people are now, um, if you go down you know, right on the dock where the, the boats bring the stuff in, there's just secondhand clothing as, as far as you can see. Hmm. And as you say, clothing being thrown away, is, is this a trend? People, is sort of disposable. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think the, the fast fashion business model is something that I'm really critical of in the film, because... I think, uh, you know, we are, we're being sold and we're being marketed this idea that you can afford uh, a new piece of clothing every week, every day. You know, I talked to people in different parts of the world that were proud to say that they, you know, would, would throw stuff away after they wore it. They'd pack clothes on a trip and they would leave them there. Um, and I think what, real, what that really begs you to consider is beyond a price point that low, um, who's actually paying the price? Because raw materials haven't gotten cheaper. Transportation costs have not gotten cheaper. And so what you quickly learn is that the only place in that supply chain, that the only margin to squeeze is on human labor. And, and that's uh, led to some really, really terrible things. Mm. Now, I can tell you from recent experience that in business school, and I just uh, just completed my uh, MBA, um, uh, fast fashion is held up in some respects as as a, a great model in terms of customer responsiveness, and and uh, you know it's it seen as an advancement. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's also heralded as you know it's the new investment vehicle. You know, I mean, I think you know close to three trillion dollars annually. Clothing has in the last two decades alone, really started to grab the attention of major finance uh, in, a, in a huge, huge way. And, you know, I, I think what I'm just trying to ask people to consider is that with every advance, and certainly there are technological and innovative advances in, in this supply chain that are to be marveled at, um, but I think the question I'm asking is, who's benefiting? Uh, and, and is it coming at the price of someone else's life being treated as less than what we would consider human. Um, that's, that's what I think we have to ask whenever we take steps forward. We have to say, you know, are, are, we, are we leaving anyone out? Is anything being left behind in this equation? And human labor is one of those things. But you know the other thing that I'll just point out? It's amazing to me to learn um, in the process of making this film how many of the costs are being externalized. So from a business standpoint, Tom, you know, you look at the incredible amounts of natural resources that, that go into making something like clothing. Um, water, for example, just astronomical uses of water. Um, and right now I'm in California where we are in need of that water. And a lot of parts of the world are drying up in the parts where they're manufacturing and stuff. And what's amazing is that those raw materials, much like the waste, is not even being calculated. So I think if we're going to boast about huge profit margins or innovations, let's let's do that. But let's be counting the real cost before we do. Mm -hmm. One of the main points of, of the film. Before we go to break, um, <laughs> I want to ask a key question. I'm sh I'm guessing some listeners are are sharing this question with me. So as I was watching the film and learning about some of these hidden costs. And being reminded about some of them, I, I was thinking, is is this me? Am I part of the problem as well? I'm certainly, you know, any of my friends or family would, would tell you I'm not a fashion plate. I just go to the store and try to buy just, just basic clothing. You know, I'm not I'm not I'm not even paying attention to high fashion. Um so am I part of the problem as well? Well, I think we all have responsibility and I think what, what's been what's taken place over the last several years is an incredible um disconnect where 
business has communicated to, to customers, um, hey, the making part of this, the taking care of the people part of this, the you know, ethical and environmental responsibility part of this, we have that covered. And so all you need to do is go in the store and think about yourself. And I think you know, what's, what's becoming very clear is that business hasn't held up their end of the bargain. And I think what it means is that as not just customers, but as citizens, we have responsibility to say, hey, how do the choices in my life, uh, do, they, do they align with my values? Do they add up? And I think there's going to be some increasingly accessible ways for us to start to regain control over that process. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, go to a uh, protest by workers in Cambodia. This is, this is a, just an intense uh, scene in the film. Also, um, filmmaker Andrew Morgan, my guest today, uh, talks with uh, some uh, cotton growers in Texas. This has environmental ramifications as well. We're talking with Andrew Morgan. His latest film is The True Cost. Uh, he's looking at the uh, true costs, uh, what, the, what the real price is for our clothing and we're looking at globalization and related issues. Um, we'll also get talking about, there's, there's a, just an incredible juxtaposition near the end of the film where Andrew Morgan uh, juxtaposes Black Friday shoppers. We've all seen those scenes with the workers who are producing the goods. Uh, that, uh, that's a very important comment. More with Andrew Morgan, The True Cost, following the break. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Will you be a caregiver? For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of a caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting the Mariachi Divas, a Los Angeles-based all-female multicultural ensemble with its foundation and roots in Mariachi. Monday, May 11th, in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cachearts.org or 435-752-0026. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Andrew Morgan. He's a filmmaker. His latest film is going to be released on May 29th. The trailer was released on April 24th, coinciding with Fashion Revolution Day, commemorating the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh. The name of the film is The True Cost. And he's asking us to consider who really pays the price for our clothing. How complicit are we as American and Western consumers in the true cost of the fashion industry? Um, and so let's uh, let's jump right in. Here's a, a clip from the film. This is a, a protest in Cambodia. A Cambodian human rights activist is speaking at a gathering mourning the loss of factory workers. Then we'll hear from John Hillary, executive director of uh, War on Want. It's an NGO. Let's hear this. The Cambodian government, like other developing countries, are desperate for the business that multinational retailers bring. Because of the constant threat that these brands will relocate production to other low-cost countries, the government holds down wages, routinely avoiding enforcement of local labor laws. But because the major brands do not officially employ the workers or own any of the factories they produce in, they are able to profit hugely, all while remaining free of responsibility for the effects of poverty wages, factory disasters, and the ongoing violent treatment of workers. The whole system begins to feel like a perfectly engineered nightmare for the workers trapped inside of it. You cannot fool us and exploit our human resources, exploit our workers. The workers will continue to rise up. I call on the international brands to put that struggle into dollars, into pounds, into euros. It translates into human capital. It translates into 
social responsibility of these big corporations, it translates into economic justice. When everything is concentrated on making profits for the big corporations, what you see is that human rights, the environment, workers' rights get lost altogether. You see that workers are increasingly exploited because the price of everything is pushed down and down and down just to satisfy the, this impulse to accumulate capital. And that's profoundly problematic because it leads to the mass impoverishment of hundreds of millions of people around the world. So you heard there from John Hillary, Executive Director of War and Want. That's an NGO. You heard also Sochua Mu, a Cambodian human rights activist. And this does point to to the, the the end result, the only place you can ultimately cut costs in the end is is with with the workers right at the factory. Yeah, I mean it's been referred to as the race to the bottom, and you know I think uh, it's one of the challenges is that with with no real traceability and accountability on the brand side, um, you know if these if these workers stand up for themselves, if these factory owners uh, stand up for the workers. Then oftentimes, you know, production will shift to uh, another country or another area where people are, you know, that much more willing to uh, to be exploited in, in a lot of ways. So it's um, yeah, it's very it's very complex. And I think one of the things that we wrestled with in the film was to stay away from oversimplifying something that was complex and yet finding the moral clarity in that complexity. There's a uh, there's a woman you interview in the film. I think this is in Bangladesh who uh, says she tried to organize the workers, tried to form a union. Yeah, we 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 spoke with Shima, uh, who is a 23 year old garment worker, um, and she is uh, yeah she she was the first president of a newly formed labor union in her factory, and uh, she recounts in the film how you know just an incredibly violent uh, situation there was. Um, you know, local folks that were brought in, they're referred to as goons, that uh, beat her unconscious. And she actually woke up. Her friends had taken her uh, to the hospital. Um, so, yeah, the, the, there's an incredible fear of anyone in, in this situation standing up and, and really identifying the idea that they have human rights because that really poses a threat to... Um, the status quo, and the status quo is, is continually pushing down um, workers' voices and, and workers' rights. Now, and so, some of these conditions are appalling. There's a uh, maybe. Tell me about about that. What uh, what are some of the problems that, you're, that we're seeing? They, they are they are appalling. And you know, for me, like I, I didn't have any background in this stuff, and all it took was going to some of these countries, just again with with a curiosity to say, I want to see where my clothes are made. Like I'm, I'm just really. I've been told a story that makes it sound okay, and I'm seeing things in the news that look like I might have been lied to. And, you know, all, all it took was going to these countries, um, working with a, a few folks who, you know, had access that could kind of sneak us into buildings and move around a little bit undercover. And, I mean, I witnessed things that were just appalling. Um, children, you know, newborn babies lying on the floor, um, workers packed into spaces so tightly. Um, you know, you see incredible disregard for basic safety, uh, you know, fire alarms, fire exits that are locked. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's something you mentioned at the top, the, the Triangle Sherwest Factory fire. And, you know, it's, it's something that feels like it should be um, long in, in our history by now. Hmm. Yeah, that, that strikes me as well. Um, and, and, you know, reforms did come, of course, in America, but maybe... I don't know. Maybe that's because standard of living in general uh, went up. Certainly, part of it was political. I wonder what did you find in in Bangladesh following the uh, Rana Plaza disaster? Of course, in the, in the news there were promises for the government we're going to fix this. But I don't know. Is it business as usual now? It's largely business as usual. You know, there were some important steps that were taken. There was um, uh, an alliance put together, something called the Accord, and there were some groups that were going in to really address some major safety issues, and they shut down some factories that were, you know, egregious uh, offenders. Um, And in that regard, uh, there were helpful steps taken, and, and I have a lot of respect for the people involved in that. But by and large, the needle hasn't moved, and I think that's what I'm interested in seeing. I'm interested in seeing more, more accountability, more traceability, because I think every time something happens in these continued incidents, the brands involved are, are still able to throw their hands up and act surprised. They're still not legally 
tied to the facilities where they manufacture their products. And I think until that, until that changes, um, we're going to continue to see, you know, these terrible results because I think there's kind of like this game of, of you know, passing around the responsibility. You know, the, the government hands it to the brands, the brand hands it to the consumer, the consumer hands it to the brands. And meanwhile, there are real people um, in real lives that are suffering as a result. If you just joined us, we're talking with filmmaker Andrew Morgan. His latest film is uh, The True Cost, and it's being released on May 29th. You're welcome to join the conversation. We're opening the phone lines now, 1-800-826-1495, toll-free, 1-800-826-1495. I would love to get your perspective on this. Maybe you have an experience. Uh, You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. We got a a comment from Chris on Twitter. He says the comment, uh, talking about uh, Andrew Morgan's comment, the comment about players making the rules is super eye-opening, says says, uh, Chris. I guess that is one of the structural problems uh, here. It's regulation, but anytime you bring regulation up, it's it's opposed vigorously. We have a huge, huge aversion to that in in America, and uh, that that goes that goes pretty deep. And I think if you look at Tom the the enormous and growing uh, CSR movement, the Corporate Sustainable Responsibility. Um, I mean, that's just one of the fastest growing sectors in, in business in a lot of ways. These companies, uh, you know, are doing a lot of work to communicate that they have things under control. And they have done that in an effort to say, you know, we will take care of this problem, leave it to us. And again, I think what we're seeing time and time again is that's, that's just not good enough and it's not leading to the kind of results that we need to see. I wanted to ask you about this, a good time to bring it in. Uh, President Obama, uh, I, I can't remember whether it's uh, coming up or he just did it, but he was going to Nike. This is part of a push for a free trade agreement. And that seemed to me to epitomize what we're talking about uh, about today. Uh, and Nike has had, uh, you know, some public problems, and they've tried to address them. They tell you, um, but I don't know. I don't know if we, you know, still have a problem with the shoes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Nike really, you know, made history in the '90s. I think you probably remember. They had, uh, you know, there's some incredible reports came out about Nike, uh, child labor, uh, especially in some of their factories. And they really did respond strongly. And they kind of, um, they didn't invent CSR, but they certainly were a leader in, in pouring a lot of resources into reputation management and, and actually made some really, you know, I think very good system changes and, and parts of their supply chain. Um, but you bring up the free trade agreement, and it's interesting you say that because, you know, for a lot of us, we've been looking at free trade agreements for a long time, saying, how is it we are, you know, taking care of everything except for a lot of the workers involved in these agreements? You know, how is it possible that we don't have basic human rights understandings? How is it possible that we don't have some, you know, basic levels of accountability um, where we're going into these countries. Because, you know, what we heard in that Cambodia clip is that you, you go into these countries and, you know, you're going into incredibly poor, incredibly underdeveloped countries, and they're always going to, you know, make sacrifices on any front to attract foreign business investment. So I think what we have to do as an international community is say those folks aren't going to be the best ones to stand up for these workers. We actually need to write it into the rules and guidelines itself. Hmm. And there, there hasn't been a whole lot of progress on that, I don't think. There really hasn't. I, you know, Bernie Sanders is one of the first people in a long time that's actually vocalized how much of an opportunity trade agreements are. But, uh, you know, I think for a lot of people that's confusing and it's complicated. And I think what we're trying to do in the film is just to make it a little bit more understandable, to say, you know, these things that seem vague and disattached, you know, here's, here's a picture of some very real people being affected by these choices. Now, if, of course, consumers have a lot of power, right? If, they, if you take your business away from company X and give it to company Y, that sends a message. But how do I know which company to do business with? Well, I think that's the most exciting part about this, Tom. You know, I think no one listening right now needs, like, another problem, you know, in their life. No, no, one, no one has extra emotional or physical space to, 
you know, start caring about this other thing. But I think what, the way I would love people to look at this is, is quite the opposite. I think for a lot of us, we feel uh, very concerned about some, some big issues facing humanity today. I think global poverty and global inequality is on a lot of people's minds. I think the protection of women and children, and I certainly think the protection of our planet. And yet, if you're anything like me, you can feel... Um, uh, it can be hard to understand how you can really do anything to make a difference on issues that big. And I think the experience that I've had, going from someone who has never thought about this before until two years ago till now, is for me and with my family, as we started to consider the products we're buying, why we're buying, looking into who we're buying them from, it's actually added a, a tremendous amount of meaning to our lives. And one of the things I've found... Um, that's really been surprising is there there is a growing number of companies who are you know some are startups and new developing companies but there are there is a growing number of companies around the world who are dedicated to really owning and being responsible and transparent with their supply chain and so yeah to your point you know anytime i get to reward those companies with uh, the vote of my dollar is a powerful thing and and don't forget this industry has gotten to the way it is because it's built on the assumption that you and I won't ask questions. And I think the power of what could take place in a very short period of time as consumers, as we begin to ask those questions, as we begin to assert that leverage, I think you could see real, real shifts. And you said earlier, uh, um, trying to remember you know, how, how stark you made it, but, but essentially the point was, in some cases, corporate social responsibility statements and initiatives are whitewashes. They are. And, and, and I'll be honest, Tom, that's the most confusing, complicated part of this. And I think that is the part that I am most vehemently uh, – <laughs> that, that's where I think the companies have done a profound disservice, is moments where they've communicated things that just fundamentally are not true. Um, you know, for me, a lot of times what this has meant is, is going back to smaller companies – that actually have a much more ownership on their supply chain. Um, it's not enough to have a company say, look, we do this one shirt that's organic cotton and ethically sourced. You know, it's like, well, what about all your other, you know? So for me, it's been, until that can get where I hope it gets, it's been returning to some of these smaller companies, returning to companies that I can actually, you know, really, um, you know, at some point even have a conversation with. It's amazing uh, if, you, if you write these brands and ask them, uh, the good ones will tell you, and they'll really explain where it's made and how it's made, and that's the kind of product that really feels incredibly meaningful to buy. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll talk about some solutions. Uh, you do uh, feature some uh, people who are looking for solutions. Uh, you uh, feature some uh, fair trade, the people working for fair trade in, in clothing. Um, also talk about this. This is just, just a heartbreaking phenomenon my producer uh, alerted me to. Some news stories of cries for help sewn into the clothing. Talk about that as well. When we come back more with Andrew Morgan, his film, The True Cost, is coming out on May 29th. Trying to figure out who you are isn't always easy. We fight for identity. Sometimes we kill for identity. But why is that? As long as you experience your condition as an identity, it's the source of your freedom. I would say that my home is where I find my identity, which is an ongoing Phenomenon. The journey to understanding identity on the next TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities. Proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org and by the USU Office of Research and Graduate Studies Sunrise Session, presenting Dr. Mac McKee, Director of the Utah Water Research Laboratory, May 5th at 7.30 a.m. in Salt Lake City. Details at sunrise.usu.edu sunrise. You're listening to Access Utah. Our guest today is Andrew Morgan. He's a filmmaker. His latest film is The True Cost. It's looking at who really pays the price for our clothing. The price of clothing, economic cost has come down, 
Uh, there's uh, much more variety. There's this phenomenon called fast fashion, which is hailed in some areas. And globalization is seen in many areas as, a, as an overall good. But Andrew Morgan is saying that there is a hidden human and environmental cost for the clothes we wear. Talking about that on the program today, you can join us at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. So Andrew Morgan, um, here's an article from The Independent in, uh, in London. A shopper in a Primark store in Swansea claims that a 10-pound dress that she purchased contained a label reading forced to work exhausting hours. Another story here from Huffington Post. A, uh, a shopping bag, a, a, reaching, a, a consumer reaching in for a receipt inside a paper shopping bag from Saks Fifth Avenue. She found a letter pleading help, help, help. And this was a, a man who uh, is uh, saying that he is in uh, prison labor, forced labor, uh, slave labor producing uh, uh, clothing. Um, that's, that's pretty stark, and it, I guess it brings in bold relief a lot of the issues that we're talking about today. Yeah, I think it does. And I think, um, you know, it, it brings in relief what makes this industry so fascinating to me. And that is that it is one of these rare moments where uh, very different parts of the world interact incredibly intimately. And I think, uh, you know, if you could take anything away from, from either of those stories, it's the simple understanding that when you pick up a piece of clothing, um, someone made it. You know, someone's hands actually touched it. And I think growing up for me, for a long time, I had the sort of disattached assumption that, you know, machines all made our clothing. And, you know, it just came off a conveyor belt somewhere. And I think to go and be in some of these places and to understand that, you know, this is the most labor-dependent industry on earth, and it employs um, a huge portion, millions of the world's poorest of the working poor, and that there's people, there's actually human beings touching the things that I wear. Um, I think that's I think that's incredibly profound to think about. And uh, of course, this brings up the the one note brings up the issue of uh, forced labor, you know, uh, slave labor. If you if you want to reduce your costs, you can get them down to zero or pretty close to zero. If it's you know, of course, it's illegal, <laughs> but it does happen in the world. Yeah, there's a lot of reports of forced labor continuing today. Um, possibly more than ever, and there's also continued reports of child labor. Uh, there's been a big push uh, to, to affect and clean up child labor, but there's just ongoing examples of where that's taking place. But I, I, I will put out, point out one thing on the child labor. I think, um, you know, one of the key issues that we have to look at here is we have to look at this idea of a living wage. And, uh, you know, there's been several independent third-party NGO reports um, by internationally recognized organizations that have looked at development work and, and wages in these countries, and they've assessed, you know, for someone to live at the very bottom, like in the slums, in the worst slums, they need this amount of money uh, to, to make a life possible, and yet that's nowhere near what they're being paid in these places. So when you look at something like child labor, or when you look at um, even children being sold into forced labor, those are symptoms, and what we have to step back and consider is why is that taking place? And usually that's a symptom of a group of people not receiving uh, a living wage, not receiving enough to live in the most basic, uh, poor sense of the word. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned we've been talking a bit about globalization, and it, it occurs to me that in, in some sense, when we think about globalization, the way we like to think about it is we're all connected. And, and I'm, you know, I'm getting my shirt from Cambodia. Um, but in, in a way, we're not connected because, we, you know, we don't really think about that person who's producing that shirt. That's a, that's a really astute comment. And I think we are more, we're more connected than ever and we're less connected than ever. I think you're exactly right. And I think the promise of what globalization uh, could be and should be is a beautiful one. You know, I don't think we need to go back to a nationalistic way of looking at production and consumption. I think, as we point out in the film, you know, the idea of spreading the, the product and the, the making of that product um, across a lot of different parts of the world in places where work is really needed, that's a, that's a profoundly good step. I think we've just, we've, we've done it only with business interests leading the way, and that's, that's left a very uneven step forward. 
Tell me about uh, some of the solutions uh, you you uh, you did in uh, feature. Uh, for example, fair trade. There's an operation, uh, fair trade operation. Tell me about some of the, I guess, the positive stories, the solutions that could point the way. Yeah, well, I think on the business level, there are a lot of uh, examples in the world of people who are, um, you know, using technology innovation um, to really create quality products that people want to buy and wear and do them in a way where all the, the hearts and hands involved along the way are taken care of. Safia Mini uh, leads a company called People Tree, a fair trade brand that's uh, been in existence for almost 20 years, based out of London and Japan. And we got to follow her in the film uh, to different parts of her supply chain, um, artisans that were working in uh, Bangladesh. Um, we went to Japan. We went to several different places. And you know, it's just amazing that when you have a business that's just predicated on the assumption that you're not going to you're not going to make a profit by taking something from the earth that you can't give back or taking something from people, that you're, you're actually going to make a business model that there's value created and it affects and it touches everyone involved. That's a profoundly beautiful thing. And there are a lot of those companies, um, I said earlier, they're popping up more and more every day. And I think the only thing those companies need now is a whole lot of support from, from those of us who are buying clothes. Let's go to a uh, an email. This is an interesting question, uh, following up on uh, a topic we talked about earlier in the program. This is Chris in Lehigh. He says, can your guests give us some ideas of how to manage our clothing in the back end after use? I usually donate my used clothes that still have good wear left to a thrift store. I struggle with what to do with the rest of my used clothes, like socks, worn-out shirts, or pants. I don't need too many rags. I only need a few pairs of pants or shirts to wear. Uh, to do uh, dirty jobs like house cleaning or yard work, I have a hard time just throwing old clothing in the trash. What's a good way to dispose or recycle my worn-out clothing? That's a great question. I mean, I think first, first let's start at the point of purchase, and I think your guest sounds like he's already on top of this, but let's purchase clothing that we're going to wear, that we're going to keep, and that we're going to hold on to. Um, you know, this, this idea that we just are picking up clothes off, off racks like we would chewing gum, uh, or candy is, you know, that, that has to end. And that's on us. I think there's a consumption cycle that has to slow down. So let's start by buying things that are good quality, that we really love, that we're going to wear, uh, and that we're going to hold on to. Um, in that part of holding on to it, um, and this is from very personal experience, I've been amazed how many of my, how much of my clothes I would have thought were worn out and, and done with that actually can be um, fixed up. There's a, uh, I live in Los Angeles, and I found this amazing guy called the Blue Jean Doctor. And, you know, a lot of times you'll get holes in your jeans or, you know, you'll get seams that start to open up. I kind of wear my jeans constantly. And, you know, it's a simple step. But I think when you're getting ready to throw something out, if it's because of holes or stains or, you know, wear, there's a lot of times where you can actually fix that up at a really low cost and hold on to something that you love. And then lastly, if you, if you are going to get rid of it, which we all have to do at some point, um, look into textile recycling centers. There are, in most major cities now, um, places where you can recycle in a way that the textiles are specifically being repurposed to, to be textiles again. And that's a really, uh, that's a great step. I hope there's a lot more innovation in that area, but that's a really good first starting point. Let's hear a final clip from the film. This is uh, Vandana Shiva, Indian environmental activist. And she's speaking about um, uh, she calls nature's economy. Let's hear this. Fashion is the number two most polluting industry on earth, second only to the oil industry. The alarming thing is that not only is fashion using a huge amount of natural resources and creating staggering environmental impacts, these natural resources and this impact is often not even measured. Because they've been so abundant, these resources, uh, it's been assumed that they're going to be there forever. Uh, so I think uh, business has not accounted for them because uh, it's only since the 1950s that we've really had this industrial uh, expansion at such a rate that we started to see exponential growth and exponential use of natural resources. The first economy on which our lives rest is nature's economy. Nature has an economy. That economy is huge. It's not counted. 
then we have people's economy, women working, weavers working, farmers growing. And that was made invisible through this construct, first in the depression and then during the war years, of the number called the GDP, the gross domestic product, which measures only that which is traded and has become a commodity. So first we heard John Hillary, executive director of Warren Want, and then that was Vandana Shiva talking about uh, those those hidden costs. We don't account for those costs. Just have a couple of minutes left here. By the way, we we haven't talked much about the environmental side of this. You'll have to watch the film for that. I wonder how do we how can we factor in those costs? I think the whole economy, the whole system would work differently um, if if we counted in all of those hidden costs. I think that's a great point. I, Rick Ridgway from Patagonia uh, pointed out a study to me that illustrates that right now as a, as a planet, we are using about two and a half planets worth of resources. And of course, we only have one. And, uh, you know, you don't have to look too far into the, picture, into the future when you think about population increase. Um, you know, the, the, you've know, got a lot of new markets coming online. Um, you don't have to see too far into the future and by that, I mean you don't have to look past like 2030 to see a world where we are fundamentally running out of resources that we need to survive. And what's happening is the, the, the closer we get to that, the, the faster we're going. And, you know, you heard him mention since 1950s, like we are, we are living in a strange time where we are experimenting in real time with things that just vastly impact the future of the human race. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things when you look at an industry like this, I mentioned earlier, I think what's horrifying is not only are we not doing, in a lot of cases, everything we can to, to use less in the way that we're making these things, um, we're not even counting. Like, we're not even factoring into the cost any portion of environmental impact or harm either after the fact or, or in the process of making. So one of the ideas that we're talking a lot about with some people, and there's been some, some really strong business initiative for this too, is this idea of an EP&L, which is an environmental profit and loss statement, which basically says until we get issues that concern the environment actually on the bottom line statements and it begins to impact what we see as profitable, we're not going to see you know, any, any movement here. So I think a beginning, a, a next step as it relates to resources and the environment is we've got to just start at least keeping track. We've got to start factoring that into the true cost. We'll leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, you'll have to see the film for more on this. Filmmaker Andrew Morgan has been my guest for the hour. His film, The True Cost, is being released on May 29th. Uh, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, man. Great to be here. And uh, join us tomorrow for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis, coffee roasting company, presenting the first half-century bike ride in memory of Randy Worth on Saturday, May 16th, planting trees to increase bird habitat awareness in Logan. Registration and course information online at cafeibis.com. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. This sage-covered valley is not on the way to anywhere, unless you're a railroad and history fan, for it was here in the northern reaches of the Great Salt Lake on that May 10th, 146 years ago, that a grand undertaking came to a celebratory conclusion, the meeting of the rails and two grand locomotives. With the driving of the Golden Spike, the Central Pacific, that had clawed its way across the High Sierra and vastness of the Nevada desert, and the Union Pacific, which rolled across the plains and Rocky Mountains, completed a steel artery of commerce and transportation. Union Pacific, number 119, and the Central Pacific, number 60, better known as Jupiter, faced each other amidst a crowd of dignitaries, engineers, and railroad workers as the final rails were laid and spikes were driven. President Lincoln's dream of a transcontinental railroad was complete. Today, the Golden Spike National Historic Site at Promontory, Utah, commemorates this event, staging daily reenactments of this meeting with two grand replica engines. They'll look and run better than ever after having undergone a thorough refurbishing. The original engines were scrapped for their metal in the early 1900s, 
but these two massive replicas were built in 1979 at a cost of nearly $750,000 apiece in Costa Mesa, California, by Chad O'Connor. He had a passion for steam. Every 15 years, these locomotives are disassembled, boilers cleaned and tested, and over 166 fire tubes are replaced. The boilers pressure tested, the gauges and brass bells and whistles are brightly shined, and the funneled smokestack is repainted, ready for their big day. There's over 500 feet of tubing in each engine. They weigh 62 tons apiece, and they make steam from purified water the old-fashioned way. 119 burns coal, and the Jupiter is wood-fired. Steve Sawyer has been a National Park Service locomotive engineer for eight years and loves driving these down the track, wearing his period costume. He's one of two engineers and a fireman who fire them up and take them out. These engines run eight hours a day for five months, from May 1st through October 15th, he says, so they need a thorough rebuilding. On a recent visit, fireman Michael Österreich takes his time as he puts a rust-proof sealant around the new welds on the boiler in preparation for a layer of insulation in the final jacket. But the three railroad men aren't alone. There are over 60 volunteers that help in this grand task, reminding us of what it meant to be able to travel from coast to coast in style and comfort. Now, Jupiter is red and blue, while number 119 is mostly red with black. Jupiter has a bright blue cowcatcher and a large funnel, while number 119's cowcatcher is red with a straight smokestack. The drive wheels are as tall as most men, and the pistons are shined to a mere finish, and there are hand-painted scenes adorning them from Disney animator Ward Kimball. They are huge, noisy, and magnificent works of art. For Wild About Utah, this is Patrick Cohn with National Parks Traveler. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. Daniel Barenboim is a conductor and a pianist. Coming up, we'll hear him in both roles. On piano, he'll join baritone Thomas Kwastoff for highlights from Schubert's Winterreise, and we'll hear from a remarkable concert on the West Bank, Barenboim conducting music of Mozart and Elgar, on the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Thanks for listening to Utah Public Radio.